0: Hey, great to be with you. We are in the book of Revelation, so open up to Revelation 8. And in our study of Revelation, we have been doing something different. We're looking for the blessing in every chapter that we're studying. Why? Because when John wrote Revelation, he said, blessed are those who read. Hopefully you're reading on your own. Blessed are those who hear and those who keep the words of this prophecy. And we found wonderful truths so far in Revelation, and we're going to unpack a truth today that I think is really going to be special, and it's going to help you in your personal walk with God as we gain a new perspective on prayer and why we pray and what prayer does in the heart of God. But before we get there, let's read Revelation 8, verse 1. John writes that when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, that verse has troubled me my entire Christian experience. Troubles me for two reasons. Number one, because we've been in heaven for a while now, since chapter four, right? And if you look at the scene in heaven, there's only one way to describe it. It's a celebration, and it's loud. How do I know it's loud? Well, there's winged creatures. There are the seven spirits of God. There are angels. They're all worshiping God. And then there's the redeemed company of all time, Old Testament, New Testament, New arrivals in the middle of the tribulation, and they're all singing this song, you know, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who has redeemed us by his blood to God, and it's this massive celebration. And on top of all that, for those of you who complain the music's too loud, it says there's thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So heaven is a loud place, and it should be. It's a celebration. Why? Because we're finally there. And all the pain is gone, and God's wiped away every tear. And you're going to be standing next to someone who you love and you haven't seen for a long time. And maybe you're standing next to someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like, man, I read your book, and Eric Metaxas wrote about you. And he's going to say, who's Eric Metaxas? And we're like, well, we have all eternity to meet people and figure it out, but it's going to be cool. And then all of a sudden, shh, there's silence in heaven. All of a sudden, no one says a word, there's a holy hush. The second thing that has always amazed me is John knows how long it is. It's a half an hour. Now, that always troubled me because I'm hoping clocks will be done away with in heaven. How about you? The tyranny of the urgent, I hope that's all gone. John's in the spirit, maybe he's got his little Barney Rubble sundial watch, I don't know, but he knows it's a half an hour. Now, for you to understand why this is occurring, I want to walk you through an exercise. It's going to be a little bit of fun. It'll help you understand what John's going through. It may also help you in your walk with God. So all of us practice spiritual disciplines. That's a fancy word for things like prayer and giving and fasting and solitude and silence. By the way, we just all went through a spiritual discipline when we came in here today. We sang. Do you know why I know that's a spiritual discipline? A spiritual discipline is something where the spirit is willing, but what's the problem? The flesh is weak, right? So some of you came in here and you saw the songs and you saw the band and you said, why is everybody so happy today? I'm not happy. There's nothing to sing about. I don't want to sing. I don't know how to sing. I'm not good at it. And then you kind of get over the hump. You start to sing a few songs and you press through. And God does great things, right? Same thing when we pray and when we give and when we fast. But there are spiritual disciplines that are good for us that we really don't practice enough and one of them is silence and solitude. My third daughter, Leah, uh, left for France the day before Thanksgiving. She researched monasteries for a couple months, found a monastery in Provence, and she went there. And when she arrived, my phone rang the same time every day, and I knew why. Silence brings out an ugliness in us. Uh, There's something in our emotional world, there's something in our spiritual world. The, The beauty of silence is you're getting in touch with yourself. And because we don't do it a lot, there's an ugliness that comes out, and we have to break through. We live in a culture that's running as far from this as it can. You hear me talk about earbuds all the time, right? I was in New York City. If you ever get lost in New York City, don't ever ask anyone for directions. They all have earbuds, and they can't even hear you. You might as well be in France, right? We go to the gym. We have TV screens. Even my dentist now has a screen and music playing. And everywhere we go, there's music. Why? Because man is drowning out his conscience. Man's afraid to be with himself, afraid to be with his thoughts, afraid to look at his inner world, but it's where we connect with God. So one of the spiritual disciplines is quiet. Now, when I drive, I listen to sports radio once in a while, I listen to messages once in a while, but most of the time, I enjoy the silence, because I want to see what bubbles up. So we're going to do a little silence today. Here's how we're going to do it. You're not going to close your eyes. You're not going to look at your phone, that's for sure. Um, you're not going to empty your mind. That's an Eastern mystical thought, is empty your mind. No, God, we, God wants to speak. We want things to bubble up, okay? Now, let me tell you what's going to happen when we start. The first thing that's going to enter your mind is, should I get breakfast or lunch in the cafe after this is over? <laughs> the second thing that will come to your mind is, what's for dinner? Third thing that'll come to your mind is who's playing today. You got to get through all those thoughts and just let the things of your inner world come up and let God speak. You guys ready for this? Now, you're already silent because I'm the one who's talking, but I think this is going to work. Okay? Ready? Silence. Okay, it's over. Let out a breath of fresh air. How long do you think that was? Two minutes. That was two minutes. Is that amazing? And imagine if you were alone. I mean, it feels awkward in here, so silence and solitude go together. I want to read chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. It was about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. By the way, that's a definite article, the seven angels. We think one of them is Gabriel because when he comes to Daniel and Zacharias and Mary, he says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Michael may be one, Satan may have been one at one time. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then there was another angel having a golden censer coming and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense. That he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound. Silence in heaven. Believe it or not, I think I have an insight to this silence, I really do. It's happened three times in my life, each time at a movie theater. Three different movies I saw, people didn't do at the end of the movie what they normally do. They didn't stand up and talk and leave or clap. They didn't do any of those things. They sat in stunned silence as the credits went up. You've probably seen most of these movies. The first was Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg movie with Tom Hanks. Uh, We had seen war movies before. This is World War II. But this was the most realistic we had ever seen, right? Uh, These bullets were real. They were ricocheting. The blood was real. And, you know, my generation had World War II parents, so it was very real to us. And if you can make it through the opening scene, you can make it through the movie. But i got to tell you, at the end of this movie, stunned silence. second movie was also by Spielberg called Schindler's List. It's the story of the Holocaust. I'll never forget this one scene, where a high-ranking German official is laying in his bed, wakes up, lights a cigarette early in the morning, goes on his balcony and picks up a rifle and starts shooting Jews who were walking through the concentration camp. That movie ended, no one moved and it seemed like a half an hour. And the last one was The Passion of the Christ. One of the greatest experiences of my Christian experience, to sit in a multiplex and see Isaiah 53 and the crucifixion of Jesus and to think that all that he had done for us, and again, at the end of that movie, there was utter silence. This is exactly what's happening in heaven. Heaven has been loud, heaven's been an unending season of praise, and there's all this activity in heaven, and all of a sudden, there's this shh, this hush over heaven. Everyone is silenced, praise ceases, and John sees the unthinkable. He's already seen six seals, the four riders of the apocalypse. He's seen famine and death and pestilence and all this stuff coming on earth. And just when you think it's over, they open the seventh seal, and out come more trumpets and judgments. And it's almost like Egypt, but on a grand scale where God now is deconstructing the earth that he just once made. Now, when you read chapters like this, and when you read the Old Testament... God kind of gets a bad rap. You ever notice that? In fact, there's kind of a small trend within the church today among Christians to disassociate from the God of judgment. There's people that are saying that as Christians, we should kind of unhitch from the Old Testament because after all, the Old Testament is all about judgment and there's things that are very hard for us to defend. And instead of looking at the Old Testament, we should just look at Jesus. Now, some of this is being fueled, I think, by the new atheist. I mentioned Richard Dawkins a few weeks ago. Listen to what he writes in The God Delusion. He said the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of what he calls fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, a fantasidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadoma- sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I should get an applause just because I can read that. Thank you, and I'll applaud you if you know what half of those words mean. He's a brilliant writer. He's wrong, but he's a brilliant writer. And because of that, Christians now are afraid to defend the God of the Old Testament, and then we take another step and we say, well, we also have to kind of unhinge from the God of Revelation, right? Because Revelation is too hard to understand. It's all about judgment. And we've whittled God down, not only to Jesus, but a Jesus who only puts little kids on his lap and says, turn the other cheek. He's only lamb and not lion. He's only full of grace and not full of truth. And then you're startled by things that we see here in Luke 12 where Jesus said, I have come to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Speaking of some of the things we're seeing in Revelation. But Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and I'm disturbed until it is accomplished. In other words, you know, he would be separated from God and die on a cross and pay for our sins. He said, do you suppose I had come to bring peace to the earth? He's bringing peace to the earth, but not now. He said, I bring division, mother against father and so forth and so on. And then there are the times in Jesus' ministry where he surprises us. In fact, one time he was walking around Capernaum. This was the base of operations for Jesus and his guys. This is where Matthew was called. This is where the, many of the disciples were called. This is where the great synagogue was that was built by a Roman official. One day Jesus was walking around and he said, Capernaum, you who are exalted to the heavens will be brought down to Hades. Why? For the mighty works were done in you. In other words, if all these miracles that are going on right now were done in Sodom, Sodom would still be here. God would have never judged it. He said, it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you here. Amazing. There was another time where in uh, Luke, Jesus brings up Matthew. uh, Excuse me, he brings up Jonah. And it's amazing because, you know, there are these characters in the Bible that skeptics love to rail on, and Jonah's one of them, right? It's kind of a whale of a tale, a fishy story, like, come on, a guy gets swallowed by a big fish, we're more intelligent than that now, but Jesus believed he existed. In fact, Jesus said, this is what my ministry's like, it's like Jonah, as he was in the heart of the great fish three days and three nights, so will I be in the heart of the earth. And then Jesus went on to say it will be more tolerable for the men of Nineveh in the judgment than for people here. In other words, what he was saying is, we'll be judged on the amount of light we have seen. So when people give you these ridiculous arguments, and maybe you have this argument where you think, okay, uh, I hear what you're saying about the gospel and accepting Christ, but what about people that have never heard? Well, I never understood that argument because you have heard, okay? So when you tell somebody of Christ, say, no, what you've heard. Don't worry about who hasn't heard. God will only judge on the amount of light you have seen. He's the just God, and he will do right. And so Jesus talks about judgment in such a way where we begin to understand that it's very interesting how this rolls out. Uh, Getting back to Jonah, uh, most of you know, Jonah was called to go and preach to the Ninevites. It was the capital of Assyria. And uh, Jonah doesn't go. In fact, he goes the opposite way, right? He pays his fare and he goes way far as he can away from Nineveh. And most of us think, well, Jonah didn't want to go there because he was scared. He heard the Ninevites impaled people and they... Kind of peeled your skin back and they took your skull and they built them in pyramids so when people entered the town, they would see what they do to people. Nothing was farther from the truth. In fact, Jonah kind of fesses up at the end. In chapter and he says, Ah, oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? When you called me, this is what I said. Therefore, I fled to Tarshish. And here's what Jonah said. For I know, and all he knew was the God of the Old Testament, That you are a gracious and merciful God. Listen to these character traits. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm and evil. Isn't that amazing? Michael Card, who's one of my favorite Bible teachers, most of you know him as a songwriter and a singer. He studied the Bible all his life and he's had this love affair with this Hebrew word, chesed. And to say it right, you have to like hock one up, like chesed. Hesed is the loving kindness, mercy of God. It's very hard to translate. We would call it grace in the New Testament. Michael Card, in his translation, said, Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, is when the person whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Wow. The person who I have every right to accept nothing gives me everything. Outside of the Bible, you know where my mind goes? In Les Miserables, when Jean Valjean goes to that priest's home and he steals all his things and the police catch him and they take him, they take, the cops take him back to the priest and say, this man was stole from you. And he said, oh no, he didn't stole, steal from me. I gave him those things. In fact, he forgot this one thing, my precious candlestick. And he looks at Jean Valjean and he says, wherever you go, take this mercy with you because God has a calling on your life. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever read or seen. That's the Hesed, the kindness of God. It's what the thief on the cross experienced, who all his life had stolen and wrecked people's lives, and now there's a man right next to him, supposedly who's a thief, who's nailed to a cross, and he says, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. And he, Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. That was the Hesed and kindness of God. And what you need to understand is God, from his own lips, said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the God that changes not. God doesn't change Old Testament to New Testament. In fact, one of the greatest things I love about our relationship with God is he doesn't change. My stepfather was an alcoholic. I think I've told you that many times. And when he was drunk, he would promise us everything. We were going to go to the best schools and take the best vacations, and he was going to do this and buy us cars, and the next day he'd forget everything. You know God doesn't forget it says, what we've given him, he's holding till the final day. Romans 8 said, there's nothing going to separate us from God. Not famine or sword or pestilence. Not even what you did yesterday, Friday, or the day before that. God's not an Indian giver. He's not looking down and saying, I don't love you anymore because you didn't do X, Y, and Z. His has said, his kindness has covered generations. Remember what Mary said in her magnificent she praised the God who has done wonderful things for her and who has said her, his kindness has gone from generation to generation. That's the God that we serve. And I believe it with all my heart because now in heaven, there's something in the mind of God that he knows that I don't think anybody in heaven knows. People wanna know, well, we know what's going on, on earth. I don't think so. I mentioned time earlier. You know what the problem with time is? Time brings regrets, right? The older you get, you regret what you did before. And you're always looking forward or backward. Time time is is a cruel master. And so I don't think we're going to look back. I don't think we're going to know what's going on in heaven, but God knows. And I think God is the shusher. I think God just goes, shh, silence. There's almost a brooding here of God as he knows what's coming upon the earth. And the reason I know this is because God said he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like I always say, judgment is his strange work. In fact, God says, Come, let us reason together. Because your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. How many of us are here because of that verse? Because somebody told you, you know what? No matter what you've done, you could be born again. You could start over again. You were a thief. You were a drug addict. You could start over again. Nicodemus, you're a religious guy played by all the rules, but even you can start over again. God said he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved. How cool was it when you came into a Bible-preaching church, maybe for the first time, and found out nobody was there to condemn you. In fact, they shook your hand. They were glad you were there. And they told you about his said, his grace, and his mercy. How about God so loving the world he sent his only begotten son? He was willing to put sin on his son that you and I might know what freedom looked like. How about when God said, I'll provide myself a sacrifice? How cool was that? How cool was it that it wasn't like all the good things we'd have to do, it was already what God had done? How freeing was that when you and I came into the kingdom? And God has even delayed, I believe, the coming of Christ to the point where Peter said, in the last days, people are going to mock us. They're going to mock God. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? He said he was coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years. And Peter said, don't count that slackness as if God doesn't fulfill his promises. He's waited all this time. He doesn't want anybody to perish. There's one last person who needs to bow the knee, and then God's going to shut this program down. When we think of judgment, we always forget man's part. Look at Revelation chapter 9, verse 21, the last verse. After all these trumpets sound, it said, "...the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of their hands, that they might not worship demons and idols of gold and silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear or walk." and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see, man has questioned God's silence. Why doesn't God just write his name in the sky? Uh, How about giving us a sun every day to look at? Yeah, where'd that come from? How about moon and the stars? How about this amazing creation? How about if I talk for the next three hours about the anthropic principle, how everything works together? Yeah, he didn't give us enough. He gave us so much of abundance, this ball floating through space, that man has no excuse. The other day, we were sitting around, this is a true story, and uh, we were talking about the planets. I have no idea why. And for some reason, I said, hey, I wonder what the temperature is on the other planets. And of course, today, you don't have to wonder, you just ask Siri, right? So somebody asked Siri. And it was astounding, like Mars, right? We're thinking of going to Mars. And you would think, oh my gosh, they always tell us Mars is so much like Earth. What do you think the average temperature on Mars is? 300 degrees. And then you look at the degrees of the ones that are closer to the sun and farther away, and then here we are, and I know it's not a nice day today, but uh, the mean temperature of the Earth is wonderful and beautiful and sustains life. And I, I mean, come on. But man has railed against God. Why is God silent? Now they're railing against God because he's interacting, bringing judgment on the earth. And see, the truth is, there are men who want to live their lives. And they like the way they live, and they like it the way it is. And they like oppression, and they like that they've gone to the top. And that's why God one day will judge, and his wrath will come. Now, I wanna walk you in less than three minutes through these trumpets, and then we're gonna get to the heart of what I wanted to talk about. Very quickly, let's look at the trumpets. Verse seven is the first trumpet. And hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown into the earth, and a third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Now, this really hits home, right? Because every night on the news, we're looking at wildfires in California. And it's devastating. Can you imagine wondering if your entire development is going to get burned? What happens when it's a third of the earth? You understand the scale of this? This is global. This is the wrath of God. Uh, verse 8 tells us about the next trumpet. A great mountain burning with fire was thrown in the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and all living creatures, and a third of them were destroyed. Now, you have to make a decision here. Is God just using natural means? Is this a real mountain being cast into the sea? John said it was something like a mountain. He saw something he never had seen before. Now, maybe it was something God was using. Could God be allowing the works of man's hands to be used, i.e., a nuclear exchange? I'm not sure. I'll read you some information. Uh, One detonation of a nuclear warhead releases a 250-mile-an-hour wind of fire. In addition, above-ground nuclear tests on the island of Bikini caused the surrounding water to shoot thousands of feet in the air, and when it froze, it returned as hailstones, big enough to destroy the equipment they set up to monitor it. When we look at things like flowing blood, pelting hail, and consuming fire, it almost looks like a nuclear holocaust, and I told you to read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it sure looks like it. So whether the restraining power of the Holy Spirit allows a nuclear exchange, or this is just natural things, make up your own mind. But either way, it is the fury and judgment of God. Third trumpet hits all the fresh waters. Verse 11 said the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. A pastor friend of mine in Russia told me the word Wormwood in Russian is Chernobyl, and you know what happened there. So again, a lot of this stuff is interesting uh, from our vantage point who live in the 21st century. Fourth angel, uh, the moon and the celestial planets are are struck. Look at verse 13. This is amazing. An angel says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even the angels are like, this is way overboard. And these are the morning stars that clap together at creation. Remember that in Job? When God created the earth, they clapped, and now they're saying, whoa, 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 because these trumpet judgments are going out. And if you read on, you'll see the uh, next trumpet judgment, uh, third part of the moon, these celestial bodies. Mount St. Helens is something worth Googling. Uh, some research from Mount St. Helens has taught us a lot about what creation may have looked like, how what we're looking at, at least carbon dating it all, could be skewed, and maybe some of the things we're going to see at the end Mount St. Helens has taught us a lot about. When Mount St. Helens erupted, the dust that shot in the air made the sky hazy for weeks. Uh, scientists tell us if a nuclear exchange took place in the summertime, that the high temperatures on the west coast would be 15 degrees. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all the vegetation that would die? So forth and so on. So this might be, again, a nuclear winter. The fifth trumpet is demonic activity, so is number six. And on and on it goes. And that's why there's this utter silence in heaven. But then there's a beautiful thing that happens. While all this is going on, on earth, the seven angels that stand before God, with the seven trumpets, another angel stands. And this angel is an interesting character. He takes a golden censer. It's mixed with with perfume and it's the prayers of all the saints. Now, this is the imagery from the Old Testament, right? The Jews had this wonderful temple, and they had a holy place where only the priest could go in and offer sacrifices. And so there was a brazen altar, right? You would bring a lamb, you would bring a goat, you would bring a bull, the priest would fillet it, he would put it on the altar, the smoke would rise. He would then take this golden censer. He would put coals from that altar, and he would take it to the altar of incense. How many of you were Catholic? Raise your hand. It's funny when we do this, it's always about a half or three quarters. How many of you are still Catholic? It's okay. Yeah, you guys are double dippers. You go there and then you come here. And one day maybe you'll only come here, I don't know. That's your prerogative. But you remember the Catholic Church, the golden censer at a funeral? I think they did it at Lent too, where the priest would walk up and down with that God awful smell right? It was frankincense, what they brought Jesus at his birth. Very expensive. It was a luxury item. And so they would take the coals from the brazen altar. They would bring it to the golden altar, the altar of incense. They would mix it with perfume, and it was symbolic of what was going on on the outside. The people were praying, and all five senses were engaged as the smoke and the burning of meat and the incense would go up, and it was a sign that God was well-pleased. So why are we seeing this scene in heaven? What is happening here, and who is this angel? Well, the angel is interesting. Part of me thinks this is Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the only mediator between God and man, and he ever lives to make intercession for us, Hebrews tells us. We're told to pray in his name. So i got to believe this is Jesus. It may not be, but I sure think it is. But what are these prayers? Are these the prayers of all the people that are around the throne? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to pray in heaven. God's already there. We're going to see him face to face. What is going on here, and what are these prayers? I'm going to speculate that these prayers have something to do with what the people who have come out of the tribulation pray. How long, God, until you judge earth? for the blood that they've spilled on our behalf. But I wanna give you a greater insight to these prayers and I wanna give you a greater insight to prayer and this perspective may really alter how you approach God, no pun intended. Get it, the alter? May alter, yeah. Just wanna see if you're still with me. Turn to Luke one. We'll get a little Christmas in here. Luke chapter one, verse five. It was the days of Herod king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking on all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. They're both in the priestly line. They had no child, Luke tells us, because Elizabeth was barren, and she was well-advanced in years, way beyond childbearing, like Sarah in the Old Testament. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of the division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, the high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, right? And he would mediate between God and man. If you were a run-of-the-mill priest, a son of Aaron, a Levite, one time in your entire career would the lot fall that you would go and burn incense in the holy place. And today is Zacharias' day. God has this all set up, right? And he goes in, and to his surprise, there's an angel. No one told him how this works. And he was afraid. And as the multitude of the people outside were praying and offering in the hour of incense, verse 11 says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and afraid. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. This is the greatest man born of woman, right? This is John the Baptist, the forerunner. Do you all catch what the angels said? Your prayer is heard. And I'm going to argue that Zacharias and Elizabeth haven't prayed in years. Obviously, they wanted a child. Barrenness in that culture was to be cursed of God. That's why Luke tells us they were upright. There is no correlation there. God doesn't work that way. God's the one who gives life. I believe they haven't prayed for years, maybe 20 years. Why? Because they, like you and me, they've gotten over it, right? This isn't God's plan for our life. God will do something else. You know, know, this isn't how it's going to work out. Your prayer is heard. When I read that for the first time, it changed my perspective on prayer. It taught me that when I'm weak, God is strong. That my prayers that I've prayed over and over again that seemed unanswered have reached heaven's door. David said, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. David knew that sacrifice wasn't what God desired but a contrite heart. If anybody knew anything about relationship, it was David. If anybody knew anything about suffering and trial and running from enemies, it was David. If anybody knew anything about unanswered prayer, it was David. He lost a child. He lost the throne. He lost building the temple. He lost the kingdom. And he said, oh God, like incense, my prayers go. If you've ever wondered if your prayers have been heard, yes. And I look at this scene in Revelation, and you know what I think we're looking at? I think we're looking at the unanswered prayers of the ages. I really do. Imagine what it's like to be God, long-suffering, who relents from doing harm, and hears the cries from Egypt for how long? 400 years. If my children were in Egypt, I'd go right away. God waits 400 years. How many of those prayers are on the altar in Revelation? What about the prayers of the Holocaust? World War II? All the pogroms and martyrs. How about all the prayers for prodigals? How about all the people that prayed for loved ones? Prayers for justice. Malachi said, where's the God of justice? See, when we think of judgment, this is strange. When we think of judgment, we don't like it. We want to talk about happy things. We don't want to talk about justice until it's a matter of you and me. I got this parking ticket, and I was in the right spot, and I want justice. But we don't want God to be just. We don't want God to be just because... Maybe a billion people don't have enough food or water, and it's not because there's not enough food or water. Or because man has kept most of the wealth for himself while others live in starvation. What about sex trafficking? I mean, we could go on and on and on. At the end of Philippians, Paul said, Epaphroditus has brought me this wonderful gift. It had to be a monetary gift. And he said, it's a sweet smelling aroma in the eyes of God. You see, the prayers we've ever prayed are still going on. I believe it with all my heart. Someone once told me, I don't know if it's an urban legend, that if you were out in outer space, millions and billions of light years away, and you had the right frequency and the right tuner, you could hear a Yankees, Red Sox broadcast. Because radio waves just keep going. And I think our prayers are like that. They just continually come before the throne of God. Remember when the widow gave two mites? Jesus turned. That sound moved him. Why? Because everybody else gave out of their abundance, she out of her poverty. Jesus was always moved by acts of faith like that, the centurion, you know, just say the word and I'll be healed. The woman on the hem of his garment. And what I think this opens up to us is something we rarely talk about and it's persistence in prayer. This isn't shooting one north. This isn't the five second prayer before I get my cup of coffee and go out to the commute. Jesus said men ought to pray and not faint. And he told the story of the unjust judge where this woman badgers this judge over and over again. And by the end, the guy gives her what she wants because he's weary. She wore him out. And we think God's that way. If I just weary God out, he's finally gonna give me what I want. No, Jesus was saying God's not like the unjust judge. He wants to give you what you need instantly. The problem is there's layers. There's layers we don't understand. And when these prayers come, I think there's great understanding around the throne that God has had to act in his own authority, and now they're gonna be answered and all things are gonna be made right. Don't ever lose faith in going before God and pleading your case. Abraham pleaded for Sodom, God, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20 righteous, Jacob held on to the angel who I think was Christ and said, you're not leaving until you bless me. The Syrophoenician women, the woman with the issue of blood, it goes on and on and on. One person said, history belongs to the intercessors. And what we're taught here is the persistence of prayer and the God who longs to answer. I'm gonna close by reading E.M. Bounds has written more on prayer than anyone I know he said our Lord Jesus declared that men always ought to pray and not faint and the parable in which these words occur was taught with the intention of saving men from faint heartedness and weakness in prayer our Lord was seeking to teach that laxity must be guarded against and persistence fostered and encouraged there can be no two opinions regarding the importance of the exercise of this indispensable quality in our praying. Important prayer or persistent prayer is a mighty movement of the soul towards God. It is the stirring of the deepest forces of the soul toward the throne of heavenly grace. It's the ability to hold on, press on, and wait. Restless desire, restless patience, and strength of grasp are all embraced in it. is not an incident or a performance, but a passion of soul. It is not a want, a half need, but a sheer necessity. Nothing distinguishes the children of God so clearly and strongly as prayer. It is the one infallible mark and test of being a Christian. Christian people are prayerful, worldly-minded, prayerless. Christians call on God, worldlings ignore God and call not on his name. Prayer has everything to do with molding the soul in the image of God and has everything to do with enhancing and enlarging the measure of grace. That man cannot possibly be called a Christian who does not pray. By no possible pretext can he claim any right on the term, nor its implied significance. If we do not pray, we are sinners, pure and simple. For prayer is the only way in which the soul of man can enter into fellowship and communion with the source, source of all christ spirit and energy. Hence, if we pray not, we are not of the household of faith. God longs to hear from us. God longs for us to grab the hem of his garment how many of those prayers, I wonder, that one unanswered for 1,948 years was that God would establish Israel? That barren land where the temple once stood, where God said he would put his name forever. 1,948 years, people prayed, God, would you restore Jerusalem? And it went unanswered. And then one day, David Ben-Gurion stands up and said, this land shall be called Israel. And one day... Every prayer you ever prayed, every question you ever had, and every longing and desire that was never answered will be understood when those prayers become before his throne. And we will be known as we are known. And we will see God and it'll be complete understanding. Until that time we look at a glass dimly. We're not face to face, we struggle, we have hardship. But all I need to know is he hears. It's all I need to know. It's all I need to know. My son preached last week, I'll close with this, and people ask me the same thing every week, are you proud, are you proud? And I keep saying, no, I'm not proud. But let me tell you what I am proud of. Mike talked about a situation he went through where he had to learn vulnerability. What I'm proud of is he didn't outsource that experience, but he shared in that message how he went to a counselor and trusted friends and he walked through three to four months of being vulnerable and he came through the other side. See, that's the Christian walk, that's faith. That's faith muscles building. That's something no one can do for me or you. That makes me proud, that makes God proud. We step out like Peter. We walk, we fall, we grow. One day it all makes sense. Let's stand and we'll pray.